My name is Terry O'Reilly. There's a legendary story in the ad business, still told around campfires and sung in ballads. The story is true, though everyone's version is a little bit different. Here's mine. The time? Somewhere in the 70s. The place? The reception area of a major British advertising agency. A group of distinguished visitors arrive just ahead of a big meeting. They're the big cheeses of marketing for British Rail. The agency is about to pitch for their business, and a lot of money is on the table. A chronically disinterested receptionist takes their names and barely condescends to motion them to sit down. The lobby is a mess. It's drab, unloved. They notice garbage strewn about. Worse still, the appointment time comes and goes. Five minutes, ten minutes, an hour past the appointed time. The British rail execs begin to stew. Discomfort gives way to annoyance, annoyance to outrage. Then, furious that an agency that was supposed to be serving them would treat them this shabbily, they rose to leave. Just then, they were greeted by one of the agency principals, who smiled warmly and said, Gentlemen, you have just experienced what hundreds of thousands of people experience every day on British Rail. Now, if you'd care to step into our boardroom, we'd like to talk to you about how to put that right. Into the boardroom they went, and of course, goes the legend, the agency got the account. I love that story. It fits any water cooler. And it's loaded with insights. It's a story of taking risks, being creative, being memorable, and finding a strong, creative way of making a client feel an issue as opposed to merely understanding it. Great pitch stories, and there are truckloads of them, uncover a spectacular side to the ad business that few ever see. And in my quarter century in the game, I've slowly come to notice that they're also about life lessons. Stick around. I'm about to spin some legendary stories from the ad world and show you why everything I need to know about life I learned in ad agency pitches in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, That's I see me the ball. Hey, great. A toothpaste should fight tapping. I can't believe I ate that all. Two-door, 13-cubic-foot resting house with the famous cold-injector refrigerating system. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. The ad agency pitch stories you are about to hear are true. Only the names have been changed to protect Terry from irate calls and emails. And, well, because it's fun changing names. It's the annual creative high point in the age of persuasion, an awards gala honoring some of the world's best messages. The high rollers of my business who gather at these soirees will sip some wine and swap war stories. And the best of those are always about agency pitches. To get the old ball rolling, 
Here's our own Steve Gardner to explain what, exactly, an agency pitch is. When a potential advertiser seeks an ad agency or wants to switch agencies, they typically hold a review. Potential agencies are invited to pitch their services. They might pitch their credentials, their strategic thinking, and or their creative ideas. In Canada, a pitch requiring all three might cost $100,000 plus. Sometimes pitch money is offered by the advertiser. Sometimes an agency will finance their own presentation. Agencies then prepare a pitch, a form of presentation to make their case for the work. Pitches are often elaborate, audacious, and spring-loaded with surprises. Most are conceived with enough painstaking attention to detail to make an army of NASA engineers blubber like schoolgirls. On the happy day, the client chooses one lucky agency to forge a business relationship with many of the trappings of a typical marriage. And about the same longevity. Thank you, Steve. And the life lessons gleaned from these pitches? Let's start with this. Don't be afraid to take chances. Consider the agency that made British Rail execs wait in a garbage-strewn lobby. Risks like that are the reason, metaphorically speaking, that one, technically two, extremities of the male body are so often credited for great pitch successes and spectacular crash and burns. Here's another from John Steele, part of the team who created the legendary Got Milk campaign and wrote a no less wonderful book, Perfect Pitch. The account? Porsche. In 1993, Porsche invited Steele's agency, Goodby Silverstein of San Francisco, to pitch its North American business. Metaphorically speaking, Porsche had serious car trouble. Annual North American sales had dropped from 30,000 just seven years earlier to fewer than 4,000. Small armies of marketing and economic eggheads forged theories about the decline, from the economy to international competition, to cost and pricing. The Goodby Silverstein bunch forged a different theory. A focus group of non-Porsche owners were asked to imagine they were stopped at a traffic light next to a Porsche 911. They were given a simple cartoon drawing depicting the scene. Over the car was an empty thought bubble which they were asked to fill in to describe their thoughts about the Porsche driver. That's when one oh-so-succinct group member offered the word, well... Posterior opening of the elementary canal. Or a compound word to that effect. And that slide, as Steele writes in perfect pitch, is exactly what he presented to the Porsche brass. As predicted, there was a pronounced intake of air throughout the room. The message? Many wanted to own a Porsche, but didn't want to assume the reputation that many Porsche drivers carried. Working on that insight, Goodby Silverstein was able to design a marketing campaign to salve the bruised Porsche image. Years later, Steele heard a group of Porsche execs in a German boardroom still talking about the, well, posterior opening of the elementary canal factor. And with that, Forever trashed was the axiom, the customer is always right. Another boardroom, another story. 
Paul Lavoie of the ad firm Taxi New York tells about the time he pitched Nike, among agencies, perhaps the most coveted, prestigious brand on the planet. In Paul walks wearing bright yellow Converse sneakers. That was before Nike bought Converse. Prior to the meeting, the taxi account director had told Paul that, when meeting Nike, they don't look at your eyes. They look at your shoes. Paul ignored all pleading from his team to leave his Converse sneakers at home. At the end of the presentation, Paul lands his bright yellow, size 13 foot on the boardroom table and says, get me out of these shoes. After a pause much shorter than it seemed, the client laughed. <laughs> Evidently, those rumors about big feet are true. In a follow-up meeting, Paul wore one Converse shoe and one Nike, declaring, you're getting close. Where other agencies salivated over the business, Paul's tactic was to remain aloof. When he won the account, Nike arrived with champagne and shoes. Another time, pitching the Mini Cooper business, Taxi refused to create any ads on spec. What is spec creative, Steve? Well, Terry, spec creative means speculative. The agency assumes the time and expense of conceiving and executing one or more ads to demonstrate the sort of work they can do for a prospective client. Most agencies regard spec creative as a nuisance, and many refuse to do it. Few, if any, spec ads ever see the light of day. An exception is taxi advertising, whose spec ads are actually used some 85% of the time. Thank you, Steve. While rival agencies had spec work out the tailpipe, Paul made an extraordinary decision not to do any. Not only that, his advice was that Mini not advertise during the first year, declaring, you are the car launch of the millennium, that the enormous attention they would receive would also get them through the second year. But it was the third year that they would need great advertising. Only then, he suggested, should Taxi go to work for them. In effect, he was proposing that his company, for the moment, do nothing. Mini was dazzled and awarded them the business. Pitching ClearNet, Paul's team arrived with blank pads and pencils and no traditional presentation. He said, I have no answers, but I have 10 questions. If together we can answer those 10 questions, we can build your business substantially. Paul sensed that they would respond better to strategic thinking than to clever lines. Again, he won the business. Audacity? Sure. Luck? Uh-uh. All were calculated risks based on a mountain of grunt work. Which brings us to another life lesson from agency pitches. Always do your homework. All marketing is about homework. But a pitch can't ever, ever succeed without it. Homework can be as simple as understanding the language of your client. My friend, Austin Howe, tells the story of legendary designer Paul Rand, who created logos for ABC Television, UPS, and, oh yeah, IBM. A half century back, 
Rand was part of a group trying to win the business of RCA, run by the just as legendary David Sarnoff. How did Rand demonstrate that he spoke fluent Sarnoff? He did his homework and learned that, by the age of 17, Sarnoff had taught himself Morse code. What's more, Sarnoff had landed a gig with American Marconi. On April 14, 1912, it said Sarnoff received the message, hit an iceberg, from an unsinkable British passenger liner somewhere off Newfoundland. Knowing that, Rand's company, the Weintraub Agency, ran a full-page ad in the New York Times entirely in Morse code, knowing that only Sarnoff, in all of RCA, could read it. Sometimes pitches are races one in a dash, sometimes in dashes and dots. A big part of homework is persistence. A generation ago, 27-year-old Charles Saatchi coaxed his brother Maurice to start an ad agency. He'd become a rising star among British copywriters, but starting from scratch would be tough. No kidding. After all, an agency isn't really an agency until it has a client. So the Saatchi brothers rented a room with a table and a couple of telephones and committed to calling every company in the London area Yellow Pages, all day, day after day, they made thousands of calls. To skip to the end of that long, tedious chapter, Saatchi and Saatchi grew to become one of the world's dominant agencies, creating a warehouse full of legendary campaigns. Saatchi and Saatchi began with a budget of $40,000. Within a couple of decades, their worldwide operation would build somewhere north of $7 billion annually. A great story. An inspirational story. Best of all, a true story. Yet, when ad people get together to tell pitch stories, it's not all about guile and heroics. Just as often, it's about comparing battle scars. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is The Age of Persuasion. Some say it was Carol Burnett, but I suspect it was Larry Gelbart who first said, comedy is tragedy plus time. Which brings us to our next life lesson. Excrement happens, especially in a pitch. What seems devastating at the time gradually morphs into a funny story. Granted, these moments get a lot funnier a lot faster when they happen to someone else. Come on with me, deep into the darkest psyche of the ad world, where we keep our stories of pitches gone wrong. Not many civilians are invited down here. See all those doors? Thousands of them, as far down the hall as the eye can see. And behind every one of them, the story of an ad pitch gone wrong. These doors here are in the circus pitch section. We would ask Steve Gardner to define circus pitch, but he's as scared and won't come down here. Suffice it to say, a circus pitch involves Hollywood production values and show business surprises. For instance, 
My friend Andrew Simon recalls a pitch where the agency's creative director thought it would be fun and surprising to have a staffer walk into the meeting in a gorilla suit. It was meant to illustrate a point they were making about gorilla marketing. So, on cue, in comes the staffer in the gorilla suit. But instead of poking his head in, winning a disarming laugh and leaving, he entered and sat down. For 15, count him 15 minutes, he sat there. Once the initial shock wore off, the prospective client sat stone-faced, never once, not once, making eye contact with the gorilla in the room. They didn't get that business, but the staffer did sweat away 15 pounds. I have a friend, oh, let's call her Constance, who once worked on the client side of the business. She asked me to look behind here. Ah, yes, the Kumbaya Room. This is the home to failed bonding exercises between agencies and prospective clients. Constance remembers pitches where agencies chewed up precious time playing Getting to Know You Bingo or having everyone build ice cream sundaes together. In another, from a pile of items on the table, they were invited to pick one and tell everyone why it best represented them. Ooh, one of our business's most observant creative directors, Karen Howe, suggested I look in here. All right, we're gonna open on a- Ah, yes. See that guy standing with the big purple blotches on his face? That's the agency writer presenting his creative with such energy and flair that he began to sweat profusely. Without skipping a beat, he grabbed a purple serviette from the table and mopped his brow. Soon, purple blotches of paper broke off into shards and adhered to his face. And thus he soldiered on, the only one in the room oblivious to the purple spots that littered his mug. And through here, it didn't connect with me at all. This is the parking garage where two prospective clients walked to their car, less than pleased with the pitch they'd just heard. All the way, they shared less than flattering thoughts about the agency and how disappointed they were. As they got into their car and drove towards the exit, there were the agency people lining their path applauding, the Brubaker clap as some know it. As a surprise, the agency people were waiting there as a final gesture to applaud. Meanwhile, they accidentally heard every word spoken. What's worse than hearing your prospective client trash your pitch? Having to applaud them as they leave your building. And why this elevator, you wonder? This is where an agency lost their pitch before they started. I don't even know why we're doing this. These guys are... On the elevator on the way up to make their pitch, a couple of them badmouthed their prospective client. When they arrived, a stranger, who had been standing beside them on the elevator, offered to show them the way. He was one of the people who'd be hearing their pitch. And good luck with that. Which brings us to another vital life lesson I've learned from pitches. In the end, it's about people. There's a saying that agency pitches are a chemistry contest. 
that, in the end, clients buy the people in the room. My favorite people story? Creative director Alan G. sat alone in his office one evening. He'd recently pitched his agency to an amalgam of utility companies. Six or seven other agencies had also pitched. A week went by with no word. At about 9 p.m. one evening, Alan was working late when his phone rang. It sounded like a conference call as there was an echo on the line. He answered, Yes, this is Alan. Then heard a room full of laughter and chatter. A big cheer went up, and the main caller said, Congratulations, Alan. To his delight, he had won the pitch. How? Explained the voice. You see, Alan, we came to a dead heat tie with three agencies. We thought you were all really great, and we couldn't choose a winner. So we decided let's call each shop at 9 p.m. and see who's still at work. Whoever is burning the midnight oil wins. You're our kind of shop. Sometimes the most technical pitches can win for the most human and random of reasons. Has there ever been a time when all these life lessons have come together in one perfect pitch? Author John Steele says that's just what happened when pitching the greatest marketing prize on the planet, the 2012 Olympic Games. It's a great story. Even. Hey guys, we're trying to do a show here. It's a great story. Even better when you know the odds. All of you could organize and host excellent Olympic Games. In Singapore, July 6, 2005, just before 8 a.m. local time, as the big announcement approached, delegates from Paris stood, arms linked, many with cold champagne at the ready. Four dozen photographers perched before the French delegation. In front of the British, just three. Even London's Evening Standard predicted Paris was a six to one favorite. Paris knew it, the world knew it, it was their time. Then. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. The winning bid was about thousands of little things all done right. But we've got time for a few highlights. First, the British team did its homework. For starters, they studied the 107 member International Olympic Committee, or IOC, noting they came from 90 different countries. To zero in on a single benefit that could sway the IOC would mean taking a chance. They practiced, practiced some more, then made time for more practice. The presentation they finally gave was a 35th draft. On the big day, there was no more rehearsing or nursing a part. They knew every part by heart. The presentation was all about people. Opening the pitch was IOC member HRH Princess Anne, who brought a note of encouragement from her mom. Olympic legend Sebastian Coe spoke, as did the mayor of London. Then, by video, Tony Blair spoke, 
in French. A nod to Britain's international mindedness and, being the language of diplomacy, to the varied background of IOC members. The icing on the cake? They read an endorsement from Nelson Mandela. Enough said. London's pitch, when distilled, was, In all we do, we will encourage the youth of the world to take up Olympic sports. Paris's pitch? Paris wants the games. Paris needs the games. Paris loves the games. London's pitch talked to the IOC's innermost desire. Paris talked to Paris. The lesson behind this perfect pitch? Know what motivates your audience. For London, it was enough to win over the IOC and rev up the thousands gathered at Trafalgar Square. Do your homework, show good manners, roll with the punches, take chances, and never forget it's all about people. I've participated in, well, probably hundreds of pitches. And like snowflakes, no two are alike. The pitch, especially an ad agency pitch, is fascinating because the stakes can be so high. A multi-million dollar account can change the entire fate of an agency. And for all you think you know, a casual elevator comment or a blotch of purple serviette stuck to your brow can spell the difference between a multi-million dollar account and a devastatingly quiet cab ride back to the agency. An agency pitch is a highly concentrated, dynamic, high-pressure microcosm of life because it contains risk, reward, and heartbreak, joy, grief, and euphoria, body blows, and hope. And I've learned a lot about life as a result. If nothing else, no matter how experienced you are, no matter what your accolades and accomplishments, I've learned you can always find fresh ways to fall flat on your face. Even in triumph is humility. Years ago, when I was with Shiat Day Advertising, the legendary Jay Shiat himself flew in from LA to add his clout to a major business pitch. After a very successful presentation, Jay came up to me in the boardroom, patted me on the back and said, Good work, Brian. Ah, humility. As good a lesson in our parents' time as it is today in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Mike Tennant and Brian O'Reilly. Engineer Keith Oman, who looks smashing in his best radio clothes, a new haircut, and a chive stuck to his tooth. Title theme by the youth of the world and all who embrace the Olympic ideal. And Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. The Age of Persuasion is submitted for your consideration to CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.